Hi everyone, this is Ben Mitchell welcoming you to another batch of Squiggly Podcast Minisodes. This time around we're bringing you some exclusive filmmaker Q&As from the Encounters Festival, whose 22nd edition is taking place in Bristol this very week. And if you're in town for the festival, you can check out these chats in person at the watershed immediately after each animation screening. But for those who can't be here, then this series is for you. And we're kicking things off with a fantastic batch of filmmakers, local and international, whose diverse films were part of the competition screening Moving Pictures. So we'll be hearing from Yolanda Barker, director of After I Saw You, as well as its lead animator, Claire Winter. Also from Zoltan Aprili from Hungary, director of the film Ungvar. Swiss director Annette Melici, director of Analysis Paralysis. Michael Brooks, director of The Petard Pinch. Charlie Miller, co-director of Player Two, produced here in Bristol. And Portuguese director Sara Barbas, whose film Final Call premiered at the festival last night. So, without further ado, let's meet the filmmakers. I'm Annette Melita, and my film is Analyzes Paralyze. Your film, tremendous, very, very funny, lovely, warm. Um, I believe, have you been to Encounters before? Yes. Yeah. And uh, what was the name of your previous film? The Kiosk. The Kiosk, right, I remember that one. Can you talk a little bit about your sort of style and your influences and uh, how this kind of film came about? Well, after I finished the kiosk and uh, it turned out to be more successful than I, I would ever, ever uh, imagine before, I, uh, people were keeping asking me the question like, so do you have new ideas and what will be your next, next film about? And, and I was like, oh, for a long time, the answer to this question was like, oh, no, I don't have any new ideas and uh, I don't know. So basically, like, it's again a bit kind of an autobiographical story because uh, it's about me being like uh, thinking too much and analyzing and, and uh, being very careful about my every next. Because, you know, when, once you make a film that is. I don't know. With the second film, it's always a bit hard, uh, harder because people have expectations, and I have expectations. And then it's like, oh, if I want to ever, ever make something, it uh, has to be good. Uh, but it puts you such under pressure. And so the film is a little bit about that. Like, and this character, this this uh, main character, he's a bit behaving a bit like me. And the reason why I'm behaving like him is because I'm so afraid to be like this gardener, like creating something that I think is looks like a swan, but actually looks like a goose, but actually nobody cares. <laughs> so it's so one only thing what she can do is like get attention all possible ways. And uh, so it's a little bit about myself and my struggles. Yeah, okay, so. <laughs> Hello, my name is Zoltan Aprili and my film is uh, Ungvar. So you're from very, very striking, um, very interesting, especially with sort of the reveal at the end that kind of uh, puts things in a pretty interesting perspective. I'm sort of curious as to your like, personal process as far as like, working out some of the symbolism and the imagery in the film. Yeah, I mean, if, if we're talking about the visual of my film, of course it started from the story and the memories what I had from my grandfather. Because I was one of the lucky person who had this story, who had this tale. And uh, it was very important for me that, that he was a survivor of a, of a catastrophe like this, 
but as he repeatedly told the story of uh, this real story, it became a tale. So when we started to work on the film, it was uh, very obvious that it's not going to be a classic animation in, in a sense that when animation is celebrating its own medium and uh, morphing into things and changing into something, it's going to be more classic storytelling. And uh, when we were looking for a, a production designer, a visual artist, I met a guy, Andras Baranyai, who is a Hungarian illustrator, and uh, we had a lot of discussion about the era and the memories. And uh, for example, just a good example, the German soldiers and none of the soldiers have faces in the film. And it, it comes from a friend's grand-grandfather's uh, diary from the Second World War, when he made drawings of the inmates in a, in a, in a war prison or something like that but he couldn't draw the faces of the soldiers because it was like if it was like censorship that time for him it was safety for him and he that's why he couldn't remember the faces of the soldiers and uh, and it was not told to the later generations all the other inmates in the prison had faces but uh, it had had names but not the soldiers so when we had this idea to have a very classic uh, story storyline and very classic images, I really wanted to have illustration which is very stiff and sometimes dreamlike at the same time. Hi there, my name is Mike Brooks and my film was The Petard Pinch for Bletchley Park. Similar visuals in some respects, uh, quite different tone in other respects and also that lovely, very sort of stark graphical style. Um, sort of interested in a bit in your sort of background and how that kind of informed the visuals of this film. So this film came about from a previous film for Bletchley Park that I did through my, my day job, which is with Google. And um, that sort of uh, allowed me to kind of do a lot of research with the museum, go down, take a lot of photographs and, and like all the sort of detailing of, of the of the artifacts that are there, like the Enigma and all the sort of old machinery and sort of informed the color palette. So I had that sort of background of, of knowledge. And then they wanted this other uh, film made for a new exhibition that they were doing. All this stuff at Bletchley Park is kind of very much focused on like what happens inside the building, but this was a new exhibition that was gonna tell this, this untold story um, about these three men that basically helped help bring the close of the war by discovering these, these, um, these documents. So visually I was kind of inspired by a lot of 1940s like propaganda stuff um, that I, I sort of went through with my dad. Um, and we, they, had, they had, I think because of the printing process at the time, they had a, a, a less colors. And I love those sort of like, you know, like mid-century kind of like posters. And uh, I just looked at this guy called Brian Cook that was like a particular influence. So I actually took the color palettes from some of his, his illustrations of the, the countryside. And then, I don't know, I just sort of uh, kind of drawn to those kind of like painterly textured, textured films. I think a lot of the things that I love are like that and I feel like that, that adds a lot of kind of emotion because the, the emotion of the story was the key thing here that people talk about most. And, and it was the, the stuff that the, they wanted to convey because this was, 
this was not an idea that I had, this was an idea that the museum had that I, I was portraying, was quite like almost beyond like the scope of like one designer to do. A lot of it, you know, they were like, and they would have been smashing cabinets and there would have been water flowing everywhere and it would have been all these scenes that like, I was like, okay, I can't do that. But what we can do is kind of like tell this abstractly and it can still be beautiful and it can still, you know, get the kind of the idea across, but in a more kind of like um, abstract way. So that's that's was sort of the thinking behind the visuals. Hi, my name is Charlie Miller. My film was Player Two. And Charlie, with your film, uh, you worked on this at A Productions, which I'm kind of interested in hearing about sort of your relationship with the studio and how they kind of uh, enabled this film to come together and what sort of role they had to play in it. Yeah, me and Harry were working, who I co-directed the film with, we were working at A Productions on a pilot for something at the time and uh, we'd written, I'd written the script and we'd gone through a couple of variations of that and I think uh, they'd just hired a new creative director and we were in the same room as him so we were quite cunning in, in what, bringing the, in the script and talking about it at lunch and, and stuff like that. So he, Matt Morgan, who was working there at the time, he got the creative director, he got hold of it and he had a read through of it and said part of his role was to try and expand what, the, uh, what A Productions did and start looking outside for, um, for new work. So, and he said that he'd shown it to Mark, who owns the company, and he liked it and wanted to take it forward. So we kind of had a couple of meetings and talked through bits of the story and Mark was unhappy with the dad in it. As a father, he was kind of unhappy with that, so we had to work through that. And But it was a really rewarding process, opening it up to to new people. And they, they were quite hands-off in a good way, I think, but they would come in at the right moment and suggest stuff that, that really hit the nail on the head in terms of getting the story right. And um, they offered up studio space so that we had all the computers and um, we got a small team together it was we didn't get any funding money wise so we got a small team of bristol animators together and we worked there for a bit and then um, they came and helped out in post-production with sound and music and we went into films at 59 and and um, uh, did the music there and the sound and that was really really great and i couldn't have done that on a, on my own so it was a it was a really good experience yeah you mentioned about the father. So was the father sort of different originally? Yeah, we, I think, kind of left it. I didn't want to, the story wasn't really about the, the dad. It, I kind of wanted to mirror, it's all about why he wanted someone to play video games with. In the, in the past, I thought that he wanted, he did play it with his father, so he would play, his, his dad would be the player too, but for the mum left and now he's, he was a bit sad. So I kind of left that unanswered until um, Mark said, you know, you've got to do something. And I just had uh, Henry walking out at the end um, and not hugging the, the dad. And he said, look, he just looks like a bit of a, you know, a bit of a <laughs> bastard. So <laughs> he made me, um, he, I think it was right just to put in the little hug at the end and it kind of ties up that, that, that at the end, yeah. Hello, I'm Sarah Barbas and my film was Final Call. So Sarah, Final Call, really nice film and very sweet and yet at the same time perfectly captures what a pain it is to be at the airport. <laughs> I know that you're certainly, because uh, you and me go back a ways, I know that you're quite a world traveller. Is that taken from first-hand experience? Very much so. As you know, I'm, I'm originally from Portugal. I've, I've lived in six different countries, so I go back and forth a lot. 
And there's something special about the atmosphere of an airport that I wanted to grasp in the film. And the film itself has been going on for quite a while, like, and you've been sort of working in the interim. How have you sort of managed to kind of get the film done over the years, sort of alongside your other sort of main work? Uh, it's a labour of love, I suppose. Uh, I had the idea five years ago, and it's, people just helped me with the development for because they believed in the story, they liked the idea. And then it took me three and a half years to find the right partners and the funding, and one and a half years to produce it. So it's been a long journey. <laughs> it's, it's quite cathartic to finally watch it on the big screen. It's nice. Hi, I'm Yolanda Barker. My film was After I Saw You. Hi, I'm Claire Winter. I'm the animator of After I Saw You. This film, very, very uh, nicely done and uh, really lovely sort of use of mixed media. I'm sort of curious as to uh, why that sort of choice was made. So the stuff that's all in black and white um, is kind of the stuff that's happening in real time and then we wanted to differentiate between when she was writing in her journal, when stuff was happening in real time and when um, she was kind of going into memories or fantasies. And um, the, yeah, <laughs> that's it. So what was the sort of background behind this film? It's actually based on a comic book strip, an American comic book strip called Dharma Comics. And um, the artist uh, draws everything in stick figures, which is why we adop uh, adopted that style. And um, I was actually a documentary filmmaker before making this film. And I just kind of came across this poem. I was following her on Facebook. I was a fan of her Facebook page. And she just posted this poem one day and I was kind of in a relationship that was sort of ending. And I just read the poem and it was like, it was as if she'd sort of written what I was, what, exactly what I was going through at that time. Um, so I wrote to her and I said, listen, I'd love to make this into a film. I had no experience in animation or anything. And yeah, she, she agreed. So I found Claire who like has had a style that was quite similar to the artist. And yeah, we, we just made it from there. So how, how does the artist find the film? She loves it, yeah, yeah. It, um, yeah, she loves it, yeah. It went viral, like, quite quickly, actually. We released it online, and um, it got, like, 10,000 views in the first week. So, yeah, it seems to, like, strike a chord with a lot of people. Well, thank you very much um, for giving us a bit of background on all the projects, and uh, at this point, it would be great to open it up to people in the audience if they have any questions. So the question is... Um, I felt really blessed dialogue? that I was working off an already existing piece of writing. Because <laughs> I think, yeah, it's quite difficult to do that. So it's nice when you just get something that's already done and you can just interpret it and not modify it. My film is totally dialogue-driven and character-driven. And I wanted to explore subtext to the maximum and try to, so each sentence means something else much deeper than you first think, so the whole, whole film is an exercise in subtext, I'm supposed to. I've got five lines of dialogue. <laughs> 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 probably about three words each. I did, yes. Um, I think one of them is kick the ball. Or <laughs> 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 Henry dinner, yeah, that, 
<laughs> Only when it was completely necessary I put it in, yeah. Um, I tried, I wanted to tell the story visually with as little dialogue as possible. Um, but I felt that I just needed a few moments of, um, of dialogue just to, to carry the story forward, yeah. I don't know if I need to say anything. I, <laughs> I had a great producer who wrote the script for me. Um, and then he found a great VO artist that spoke at one of his friend's weddings that was a Shakespearean actor. We got him in and uh, I was not involved. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, in, in, in my case, it was, uh, it was a big question if we should use dialogues or not because uh, the film takes place in the past and uh, I, I didn't want to use dialogue at all because I had this idea that I don't know the voice of these people, the younger self of the people. And then we had a version where my grandfather was talking like, uh, like in an interview situation, a narration, and I didn't like it at all. It put the entire film in a very sentimental kind of thing. So I, I had to fight for not having dialogues because we don't know the voices. And uh, as, as you might remember, we can only hear some background uh, things just to understand uh, the language or, or that they are talking in German, they are talking in Hungarian, etc. etc. So it was a big issue, but I'm really happy that uh, we didn't use dialogues. I, I had a version of the script when a scriptwriter friend of mine wrote some dialogues and it was all fake for me, so we just throw, the, throw this out. I also I try to avoid dialogues in my films out of like two reasons. I think it's just uh, easier. <laughs> the I mean, it's more practical afterwards. You don't have to translate it. Everybody can understand it. And also it's not necessary. In my case, it's like I try to also show things visually and they are talking the characters they are kind of talking but uh, the, the language is such a fantasy language so everyone can understand it but still i could not escape using some words like the smart dog and happy dog so sometimes you can uh, yeah understand so it's it, but it's written text yeah. as a foreign filmmaker how do you go about submitting your films to uh, go to festivals abroad and also getting it to connect with, uh, with different audiences? So, um, uh, for foreign filmmakers, what is the experience like of submitting your film to international festivals and reaching international audiences? It's a bit uh, like uh, submitting film to festivals is, takes more time than one would think because you have to all the time follow the deadlines and it's it takes yeah some time but once it's in the festival then it's there and i hope people will like it and i don't know maybe the previous question about not using dialogues is also a little bit uh, a way how to reach international audiences like i avoid this uh, uh, will people understand it or not so I use a kind of universal language and I hope they do, <laughs> yeah. In my case, it was a big question that such a small part of history, the Second World War, which is so much related to, to a small country, could be interesting for any audience outside of Hungary. But we believe that the film has another layer which is more about memories and families and generations, and uh, that's why it's it's understandable and will 
be received well. But this is the first festival, so I, I'm not really <laughs> competent to answer your questions, but let's hope for more. Uh, I'm from Essex, does that count? <laughs> Uh, one of the things I wanted to do with this film was just grasp people. Uh, and hopefully they will relate to the core feeling I was trying to put across about not missing an opportunity. And I think that's, that crosses borders. <laughs> so this is the second festival that our film is in. It was in a festival in Germany prior to this. And um, I kind of felt like... <laughs> They just didn't. They didn't get it as much. Like the film that won was a was a comedy, like a screwball comedy. Um, so I find I think it's. Uh, I think a lot of the time where your film is shown, actually depends a lot on the culture, like how it, how it's received depends on the culture, and where it's shown depends on the culture as well. Because the people screening it will will choose based on their own preferences. Does that answer the question? I don't know. Did I go off on a tangent? <laughs> Every, every element in this film has a reason to be. I, I chose the, the, the animals for, for what they represent and for this, the symbol they have and the type of character they have. You know, the cat and the dog are the most obvious ones. And, and I, I also wanted to use the animals to make their journey even harder so that they don't want to be there. They're having to have this conversation they don't want to have, and then they have a really slow turtle making it even slower, and the blind mole just searching him, and the weasel. So I was trying to get the animals that would enhance or make that situation just push it as far as I could. So yeah, it was all intentional. So did you come up with the idea of animals? I had three separate ideas. That's, that's how my films come uh, together, from three separate threads. One was the setting of the airport, one was having a film with animals, and one was having uh, a story about missing or not missing an opportunity. And then I just created this. <laughs> yeah. Just out of sort of geeky curiosity, how long did each of your films take from sort of like the first gem of the idea? So um, the question was, how long in each sort of case, how long was the production from the sort of first gem of the ideas? Well, it felt like forever. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, it was quite quick because it was stick figures. So I'd say like six months. Oh. It wasn't that long really. Most yeah. animations take a lot longer when they are that length. So I kind of cut a lot out by using stick figures. But yeah, that's not too bad. Yeah, I think I read the poem like in June or something. We finished it in January. I'm embarrassed now. <laughs> yeah, other films take a lot longer. <laughs> Five years altogether from the gem of the idea to final output. I was a year and a half, I think. Half a year was sorting story, and then a, a year was on, on production, working in evenings and weekends and, and the odd week here and there, yeah. Uh, three or four months, I think it took around that time. For us, it's, uh, 
I, I should divide to two sections because one part is to get the money for the film. And in Eastern Europe, that's coming from some fund. And uh, we had an application period which was like one year or something like that, which I think I consider it very long for a short animation. I don't understand why it is so long, but there was summer break and stuff like that. But still, you are working on your film, you are making storyboards, you are making changes in the script, but it's not actually the production. So the production, once we got the money, was like uh, one and a half year, one year, two months, maybe like that. But to get uh, funding for the film, that's, that's a lot, that's a long way to go. For me, it was all together uh, around two years, like half a year developing story and also getting money and then one and a half to make it. Can I ask if anyone's stories changed? How much they changed over time by the time it was finished? So the question was how much, if at all, did the stories change over time during production? <laughs> oh, it's hard to say because in my case I it changed a lot, but well, I had an idea for the character, for his problems, like thinking too much and all this. And but uh, how the story itself, which it's hard to say because uh, there were many bigger and smaller changes. Like I was changing it all the time <laughs> until the last moment. <laughs> I must say, yeah. Well, it's uh, you know this film is based on a true story and we were facing that this is a very problematic thing to base something on a true story because uh, you, are, you are not seeing it with your own eyes. Maybe some other medium will be in the future better for this. But now I'm looking uh, all the f all the films, all the American blockbusters based on a true story with a different eye because it's not possible. It's just not possible. Uh, you need to choose some images. And uh, we had a section which is like a dream or, or something like that, a fantasy or a dream section. And it changed uh, at, uh, at almost at the very end uh, at, uh, on the editing uh, software, in the editing software. We had to take out a part of the film because it, uh, it I mean, originally they had to go out to leave the ship and collect branches or, or of trees to cover the deck of the ship because if they travel during the night it will be more invisible for the for the war planes and we had some scenes when they are walking in the forest and everyone who watched the film the first versions of the film they thought that these scenes are from this, the first world war these are memories from the First World War. And so it was totally misleading the entire storyline. So we needed to cut this section out and have this entire forest scene as a, as a dream or as a, as a fantasy, which is inside the main character's head. So it's a similar story in that my story is historical but there's sort of ambiguity about what the truth is. So we work with a historian at Birchley Park and, and, and so in that respect, things changed. Um, for example, uh, I think first of all, that w 
I was told that they, they found the Enigma on the boat, but then actually they didn't. They, they just found like naval documents. They probably didn't find an Enigma machine there. And then there was, there was other stuff like at one point, three of them were swimming in the water and then we decide, I think they decided that actually they couldn't say that they'd all be in the water. So I had to take one out of the water. And then another thing was when one of the guys jumps into the water, originally they, they told me that um, the guy was in his underwear. So I actually uh, filmed myself jumping off a stepladder <laughs> in my underwear, rotoscoped it, and then they decided that actually he would have been wearing trousers, so then had to rotoscope trousers back <laughs> on every frame to myself. Still have that footage. Uh, <laughs> it's me. They had about I think, 16 drafts of this script, and the, from the first to the last was quite different. The first draft, um, Harry, my co-director, he wrote it. And um, it was quite personal to him, and I think we, we read it through a couple of times. And we decided it was a bit too personal, so we, we we took it back in time to kind of look at both of our childhoods and and look at films that we both like about childhood, like Stand by Me and um, E.T. and and The Iron Giant. So we we rewrote it. I rewrote a few scripts, and then just little tweaks later on down the line. And and um, the bit with the peas, which I think is the whole. It makes the movie. It's like what the film is about. It should have been called Peas, I think. But um, that was quite later on in the film. And uh, so just little tweaks. I think he, got, um, the main character, Henry, he got the black eye in, in one of the drafts and I took that out and because it, it was a bit predictable. And we sh like got loads of people to read it and that was really helpful and, and, and just to get it out of your own head and see how pe different people see it. So yeah, a few, few different drafts. I had... Well, I wrote 13 drafts of the script, and we had 13 animatics. Wow. Yeah, and uh, five different endings uh, that we, w we went through. But then I went back to the core story, to the first idea. This was mainly because there were so many people involved in the development. At a certain point, we were going to do it in Poland and then in France, and then it's going to be stop motion. I can only have six puppets, so we had to redraw everything again. And then it wasn't going to be stop motion, it's 2D again, so we could populate the airport. So it just kept changing organically. But in the end, I just tried to stick to the core of it, the essence from the beginning. Yeah. Based on the last question where everyone said how long their films took, and I realised it takes a lot longer if you don't have a text to work off. So we were really lucky. We had, like, I think the writer whose poem we adapted is really talented, and she kind of wrote a perfect three-act film, really. Well, it didn't really change much. We like, changed around, like, just bits and pieces, like the order of things and what was going to happen, like, visually. But, like, we storyboarded and then mm. we kind of, yeah. Yeah, we kind of fell for it quite quickly, I think. Yeah, so that was good. <laughs> Other stuff I've written, like, has taken 13 drafts, yeah. <laughs> but Leia did all the drafts for us, so... Well, thank you everyone so much. Thank you very much. Great stuff, and thank you very much to all the filmmakers for getting involved, as well as the head of the Encounters Animation Program, Kieran Argo. You can learn more about their work at their respective websites, sarabarbus.com, annettemelici.lv, mikebrooks.tv, charlie-miller.co.uk, 
yolandabaka.yolasite.com, clairewinteranimation.com, and Zoltan Apfreli is at Zoltan Apfreli on Twitter. You can also find his work at daazo.com. And if you're listening to this the day it comes out, Thursday 22nd of September, and you happen to be in town for the festival, do swing by Kongs of King Street tonight after your encounter screenings are done for the annual Rumpus and Squiggly Animation Party. It's open to all, and it'll be going on all evening from around 8. And on the subject of selected filmmakers, you might want to check out episode 2 of our other podcast series, Intimate Animation, which went up last week, featuring Anna Ginsberg, whose film Private Parts is playing as part of Encounter's Late Lounge XX Extra screening tomorrow the 23rd at 9pm. And you can find that in the podcast section of squiggly.com. And be sure to check back tomorrow for the next in this podcast Minnesota series where we'll be meeting more of the Encounters filmmakers. Bye for now. Bye for now.